I'm super glad that you're here because today we're going to wrap up a series of messages we've entitled Focus. Uh, Back in December, maybe late November, I was struggling to figure out what are we going to talk about in January. Uh, January is kind of a a symbolic new beginning, uh, and I thought it would be good if we kind of examined how God sees us. Uh, How does God view people? Uh, How does God view the church? And today, how does God view me? Uh, The first time we got together from Luke chapter 15, if you recall, we read three parables, stories that Jesus told, that demonstrate that God sees people very differently than we typically see people. Um, In God's mind, there are only two kinds of people in the world. They're either lost or they're found. Uh, Jesus said that it's not unlike God to leave the 99 who've already been found to go try and find the one that remains lost. We believe that at Grace Community Church. That means that everyone in your circle of influence, whether it be your carpool or whether it be your soccer team or whether it be your second period chemistry class or your neighborhood, your family, the workplace, everyone in your circle of influence is either lost or they're found. A church that loses sight of that simple Bible truth is the church that tends to gravitate naturally toward the 99 who are found, totally ignoring the one who remains lost. Jesus died not for the found, not for the righteous, but for the lost. The second time we got together, which was last Sunday, we talked about how God views the church. Now, the church can be called many things. The church is seen many different ways, but... We believe that since Jesus Christ is the bread of life, the church is like a table where people come to get fed. Every Sunday, there's a seat at this table for you and for your family. And every Sunday, there are three different kinds of people that have a seat at our table. There are skeptics who are a little critical of our message. They might not even believe our book. They don't share our doctrine. Uh, But nonetheless, they're hungry. They're seeking. So they show up at the table. Uh, When that person buys in and embraces authentic faith in Jesus Christ, it's like they get out of that seat and they sit down in another seat. We'll call that one the new believer chair. That person wants to grow. That person grows by adding to their faith. Life change is spiritual growth. And then the third chair represented at the table is the chair belonging to a Christ follower. This person, according to 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 9 remains effective and productive in their faith by remembering that at one time they were a seeker and a skeptic. Don't lose sight of that. Now, to God, he sees the world as either lost or found. That is his focus. When it comes to the church, the church is a table where people come to be fed. Today, we're going to talk about how God sees you and how he sees me. Your identity, if you will. Identity has become big business in modern American culture. You realize 30 years ago when I'm in college, no one had heard of identity theft. I didn't know what identity theft was until probably 10 or 15 years ago. Uh, Now it's not only big business, evidently it's big crime. We now have more ways of identifying you than ever before. You know, back in the day, it was fingerprints and that was about it. Now we can pluck a hair from your head and using DNA, we can identify you or establish your identity. Uh, Victims of crime that are found in the woods or buried underground can now be identified using all kinds of resources available today that weren't available even 10 or 15 years ago. 
Your identity is very important to you personally. That's why you take steps to protect your identity. That's why you have passwords. That's why when you're on the internet, you're consciously aware of everything you're doing because we can find out your electronic identity based upon where you swipe your credit card or based upon how you surf the web. Identity matters to followers of Jesus Christ in the church, or at least it should. Uh, maybe you remember this story. It's been 12 years ago. It was 2004. There was a man found in Richmond Hill, Georgia, behind a, dairy, uh, behind a Burger King. Uh, this man looked to be middle-aged. Uh, no one knew who he was. But in the middle of the night, a Burger King employee took the trash out to the dumpster, and there he lay. He was naked. He had been beaten, he was bloody, and he was covered with fire ants. He was unconscious. They called the paramedics, they came and got this man, they rushed him to Memorial Hospital. When he awoke, and when they brought him to, and they were taking care of his wounds, there was one big problem with finding out who he was. He didn't know himself. He had what they call disassociative uh, amnesia. He had no idea of his name, of his birth date, of his home, whether he had family members, whether he was local, whether he was from out of state. He had no idea. He came to be known as BK Doe. Instead of John Doe, they called him Burger King Doe. BK Doe. Listen, for years this man struggled to find his identity. For years, no one could help him. The FBI got involved. They used his fingerprints. They used DNA, but they came up empty. They tried to track him down nationally, even worldwide, on the Dr. Phil show. Dr. Phil had him out to California, put him on television, pled with America. If you know this man, contact us at this number. Dr. Phil hired a, a whole team of private investigators to find out who is this man? Who is this guy? BK Doe and no one knew. Year after year after year went by. In fact, his caregiving nurse at Memorial Hospital actually took him into her home because she felt so sorry for this man. You see, he couldn't get a job because he didn't have a social security number. He had one, but he couldn't remember it, and there was no recollection of it. That meant he couldn't get a good-paying job. So this person, out of the goodness of her heart, a nurse at Memorial who still works there today, took him into her home, and helped him find part-time work just so that he could survive. For 12 long years, this man had no idea who he was. Was he a father? Was he a child? Was he a brother? Was he loved? Was he ostracized and kicked out? Was he married? Was he unmarried? He had no earthly idea. Imagine that for a moment. Tomorrow morning, you wake up and you have no idea who you are. You have no idea where you are. You have no idea how you got there. For twelve, Well, it's been 12 years the man still didn't know who he was. That's what the enemy wants to do to you. You have an enemy if you are a follower of Jesus Christ. And he wants to do to you what happened to B.K. Doe in October of 2004. He wants you to forget who you are. The enemy is real. Just as real as I'm sitting before you today. The enemy perverts, distorts, and destroys everything God creates. You see, the enemy can't create on his own, but he'll take something God has granted us and he'll pervert it. He'll twist it just a little bit. He'll distort it just a touch and then he'll destroy it. He does it to marriages. He does it to sex and sexuality. And he does it with your identity as a follower of Jesus Christ. Let me tell you how he does this. He wants you to believe that you're not who God says you are. And he'll use the opinion of others to do it. 
I bring that to your attention because some of you grew up in a household where mom was way too critical. Dad was way too demanding. The idea of of being loved unconditionally is something you've never experienced because your upbringing was all about measuring up to someone else's standards. Please listen to me when I say this. According to the Bible, you are not who people say you are. That's not where you find your identity. Ladies, gentlemen, you are not what your body says you are. That's a tough pill to swallow in today's culture. Every time you flip through the pages of the magazine, the people selling you the vitamins, the people encouraging you to exercise, the people trying to sell you the clothing line or the shoes, they are physically fit, absolutely stunning to look at, supermodels page after page. Every time I turn on the television, sports television in my home, ESPN, ESPN2, one of those channels, I'm looking at some 50-year-old guy who is ripped and cut because he takes some kind of medicine, and I'm looking at myself in the mirror saying, I don't look like that. I don't measure up to him. I can't possibly exceed or excel as well as he has. Uh, You are not, listen to me, what your body says you are. Your appearance does not establish your identity. I'll tell you something else the enemy will use. He will use your relationships. You are not the sum of who you are based upon your being married, happily or unhappily. You are not the sum of who you are based upon your being divorced. The enemy, see, once he gets you to buy in, he's got you now. Because he can't, he can't create the thought in your mind. He can't make you think it. But if he can just give you that little feeling of doubt... He whispers in your ear, you can't win. As soon as you buy in, as soon as you repeat it yourself, you can't win becomes I can't win. And his work is done. He's got you. You've lost your identity. He's distorted it. He's twisted it. And he's on his way to destroying it. As soon as he says, you don't matter. And you buy in, you repeat it. You don't matter becomes I don't matter. Do you realize that every week of my life, I sit down in my office and I open books of spiritual heroes of mine, pastors of large churches, theologians, college professors, doctors of this and doctors of that. And I think to myself almost every time I'm blown away by one of the points they make, why can't I come up with stuff like that? Why can't I come up with that kind of creativity? Why don't I see things as clearly as this person presents it? Why isn't our church as big or as strong as that person's church or that church in that city? And the enemy whispers in my mind, just like he whispers in yours, well, that's because you're not as good as he is. Not according to this book. Not according to this book. We're going to talk about your identity. You see, To a lot of people out there, they would refer to us in here as Christians. Now, we've talked about this before. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, a lot of people would call you a Christian. But Christian is not an often used word in the New Testament. I don't know if you know that or not. But only two times in the New Testament are we called Christians. In fact, one of those times, it's a derogatory comment. Jesus called us something else. Jesus didn't call us Christians. He called us disciples. But even that is a name. Even that is a moniker. Uh, That's a term or a label. The most often used terminology in your New Testament regarding your identity is this. In Christ. In Christ. Over 140 times in your New Testament alone, as followers of Christ, we are called in Christ. But what in the world does that mean? So the first time we got together 
It was how does God see the world? Second time we got together, how does God look at the church? And today, it's how does God see me? Let's talk about this. First Peter chapter two, two verses I'm going to read. If you ask me, Mike, where does the New Testament define my position, my identity as a follower of Jesus Christ? When you say I'm in Christ, I want to know what that means. Tell me where to find it. This is the past passage I would go to every time. This is the clearest. This is the fullest. This is the most comprehensive two verses in your New Testament that define what it is to be in Christ. You want to know your identity? You want to know how God sees you as a follower of Christ? Here it is. Read it with me. Verse 9. But you are a chosen people. There's the first word I want you to underline, at least mentally, if not in your Bible. You are a chosen people. That's part of your identity. We'll explain in a moment. A royal priesthood. There's number two. Underline that phrase. If not in your Bible, at least in your mind. The second part of my identity in Christ. Peter says we are chosen, and he says we're a royal priesthood. Then he says we're a holy nation. You can circle the word holy. Holy, what does that mean? How is that connected to my identity? Talk about that in a moment. God's special possession. There's number four. God's special possession. That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of the darkness into the wonderful light. You understand, when someone lives or walks in darkness, it is because they are lost. When they embrace authentic faith in Jesus Christ, they step into the light. That's what Peter's referring to. Now watch verse 10. Once you were not a people, once you had no identity, at least as you are connected to God, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. There's another one. You can circle that. That connects to God's special possession. Those are one and the same. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. There's the last one. We have received mercy. From those two verses... Peter gives us five declarations, five characteristics that define our identity in Christ. You want to know how God sees you? I offer 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Let's look at them one at a time very quickly, and we'll wrap it up. Number one, he says, verse 9, we're a chosen people. Do you know what that means? That means that I am completely accepted. I don't have to earn it. God has already chosen me. I don't have to live up to it. God has already chosen me. Because God has chosen me, I need to understand that I'm completely accepted and acceptable before God. Oh, now wait a minute. You don't hear a lot of that preaching in many of our churches. If the church has failed in one egregious way over the centuries, it is this way. We felt like the best way to build disciples is to beat them up every week. Jesus didn't do that. A healthy disciple is one who's encouraged, who's one who's uplifted, challenged, yes, reproved when necessary. But you need to understand that the Bible says you, just like you are, were handpicked by your creator. Now, usually when we read the word chosen in this passage or another passage, Ephesians chapter 1, Bible scholars and Bible students launch into some debate over predestination and election. I'm going to save that for another time. I don't want to focus on that. I want to focus on your simply being chosen by God. Think about it. We think we chose him. 
The scripture says he chose us. And John the apostle says the only reason we chose him is because he first chose us. You are a chosen individual before God. He chose you before everything. That's what Ephesians 1 and verse 4 says. That God chose you before anything else. Ephesians 1 verse 4 says he chose us in him before the creation of the world. That means that before God created the ocean, you were chosen. Before he made the beauty of the mountains, you were chosen. He chose you just like he knew you would be. You were chosen before you ever had an opportunity to earn his love. So you don't have to. You were chosen before you were ever given another chance. So you don't need one. Just like God chose a nation in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel, in her fickled idolatry, up and down, hot and cold, following God, running from God, worshiping God, worshiping Baal, just as God chose them in their failure with all their warts and all, He chose you. He chose me. That means I'm completely Accepted in Christ. I'm completely accepted not because I've earned anything in his eyes, but because he chose me I bring that to your attention because some of you know what it feels like to be on the playground in fifth grade and be the last kid picked for kickball Remember that feeling? Oh, there's only three left. Please pick me. Please pick me. Please pick me And you're the last one picked you're like the consolation player And you grew up feeling like you're a consolation follower of Jesus Christ. Nothing could be farther from the truth. Peter wants you to know that you are accepted completely and totally by God because he chose you just as you are. The second thing he says is you're a royal priesthood. You know what that means? That means that you are fully capable. My identity in Christ is one in which I recognize I was chosen just like I am. I don't have to earn God's favor or somehow live in such a way so as to deserve his love. No, I'm also fully capable. One of the most powerful, preeminent, prominent people in the Old Testament was the Old Testament priest. These men had lots of influence, lots of power, lots of authority. Do you know why? Because unlike the average Joe, they had special access to God. In the Old Testament, the people needed the priest to get to God. In the New Testament, we're our own priest. I don't need another man to help me find forgiveness for my sin. I am a priest in and of myself. I represent myself to the matchless and wondrous creator. I'm a royal priest. I'm fully capable. That means I have an audience with God. The book of Hebrews tells me that when I pray, I do it boldly. I do it boldly. I'm not timid. I'm not kind of coming in there and, you know, toe in the dirt with my foot. Uh, God, if you have time, can you work me in? The author of Hebrews says, man, when you enter God's presence, you make your request and you do so boldly. Why? Because you're a royal priest. You're like a high priest in and of yourself. That's what makes it what makes you capable. He is my creator. The Bible says he is my counselor. He's my guide. And because I am a priest, I'm part of the royal family. He is available to me. He is accessible to me. He's in my corner. I'm a child of the king. I come from royalty. He knows your name. And he knows what we need 
in Him. That means I can endure whatever circumstance I find myself in today. I can endure it because I'm fully capable. It means that I can win because I'm fully capable. It means that I can overcome. It means that I can conquer. It means that I can perform. Sometimes here we say that every member at Grace is a minister. Every member at Grace is a minister. This church doesn't simply have a few ministers. It has hundreds of ministers because you are as capable of being used by God as I will ever be. The Bible teaches that God has a vast army of priests all pointing people to his love. Here's the third characteristic of your identity. You're holy. You're holy. You're a holy nation, Peter wrote. You know what that means? That means I've received the highest calling. That's what it means. A lot of people, when they talk about holiness, they get it confused with righteousness. Ask somebody to define holiness. They'll say, well, God is without sin. Well, yes, and that's part of it. But that's more a definition of righteousness. You know what holiness means? Holiness means set apart unto himself. That means God is always, 100% of the time, God and God-like. There's never been a moment in history past. There will never be a second in history future whereby God acts any other way than godly and God-like. God is holy, meaning he is set apart unto himself. He is true to his godness. That's what holiness means. Guess what? In both Old Testament and New, you as, and I as followers of Jesus Christ are commanded to, quote, be holy as he is holy. How in the world am I going to do that? How can I be like God in this particular area? Guess what? Jesus did that for you. Jesus made you that way. Jesus gave you an identity that is set apart unto God. You have received the highest of callings. You have received the highest level of clearance. You have not only an audience with the Father, but you have a position in his family. Here's number three. I belong to God. You see verse nine, he says you're a God's special possession. And then verse 10, you are the people of God. That's two ways of saying that we belong to God. That means that I'm extremely valuable. What makes something valuable in our culture? Several things come to mind. First of all, ownership makes things valuable. If I took off my shoes and put them on eBay this afternoon, and let's say they were the exact size, the exact model, the exact type of sneaker that LeBron James wears in his Cavalier basketball games, whose shoes are going to bring more money? LeBron's, right? Nobody will pay me anything for mine, but if they're owned by LeBron, or they were worn by Michael Jordan, 20 years ago in an all-star game, they're going to bring hundreds and hundreds of dollars. Ownership assesses value. The Bible says you are owned by God. You are God's special possession. You need to understand how valuable that makes you. Tell you something else that makes things valuable, how the owner feels about it. I have a picture in my office, a picture of me and another man in our church years ago. He's since retired and moved to another state. But years ago, he took me to Sawgrass, which is a world-famous golf course in Ponte Vedra, Florida. This is a tournament that the pros play every uh, late spring, early summer. It's that famous island green, hole number 17. There's that island green. And in my office, I have a picture of me on the 17th tee box. I've just hit my shot, and I'm watching it fly toward that island. And below it is a picture of him doing the same. Now, that picture is in a $4 Walmart frame. It's, you know, a 
you know, a printout, I don't know, 30 cent piece of film that's been developed and I've stuck it in there. But it's worth so much more to me because it belongs to me. Tell you something else that makes things valuable. And that's what somebody's willing to pay for it. Back in the 80s, it's so cliched and it's so like old fashioned now. But I remember having a T-shirt on the front. It said, how much does Jesus love me? And when you turned around, it was a picture of Jesus with his arms spread on the cross. And it said this much. Jesus died in your place. That's how valuable he believes you are. Here's the last one. Not only am I completely accepted, fully capable, I've received the highest of callings, I'm extremely valuable. The last part of verse 10 says, I have received mercy. Do you know what that means? That means I am totally forgiven. That's who I am in Christ. Not partially forgiven, not sometimes forgiven, not if I behave myself and do better the next time forgiven. I'm totally and completely forgiven. The reason the enemy tries so hard to distort and destroy your identity in Christ is because my sin identity that I received from Adam, that family resemblance, according to Romans chapter 5, that I got from my father Adam has been completely and totally destroyed by Christ. You see, the family resemblance has changed. Some of you would love to change the family resemblance, wouldn't you? Some of you say, oh, I've got my father's nose. Man, I wish I could fix it. So you say, I've got my father's enormous feet. I wish I could fix them. Um, <clears throat> my parents in 1955 were swept up in a whirlwind romance. Uh, my father in the month of September went to a Sunday school picnic. He nudged one of his buddies and he pointed to my mother, whom he had never met at the time. She was sitting underneath the tree with several of her girlfriends. This is late September. He says, buddy, I'm going to marry that girl. And December the 22nd of that same year, he did. Now, my dad drove a fancy car. It was a big black Mercury convertible. He wanted my mom to think he had a lot of money. He used to brag to her that he owned 30 pairs of pants. 30 pairs of pants. My mom said, on our honeymoon, when we started unloading uh, his luggage, and I saw the condition and the age of those 30 pairs of pants. Now, when my dad was 20 years old and newly married, he was six foot three and he weighed 141 pounds. He's tall and skinny. Mom said he took his pants off and he stood there in big boxer shorts that had red hearts on them. She said he moved around a little bit, climbed into bed. She said, Michael, when his foot came out from under the cover and I saw the size of his big toe, I thought he's got a rubber toe on his foot to try and make me laugh. Turned out that's just the size of his feet and his toes. Well, guess who's got dad's feet? And dad's toes. If I could change it, I'd have been a faster runner. I'd have been a more swift and elusive quarterback. I'd have been a better athlete if I could have gotten rid of these enormous feet and these big toes. Guess what? Jesus changed your family uh, identity. He changed that family resemblance. You no longer resemble your father, Adam. You resemble your father, God. All right, I got to quit. I told you about BK Doe at the beginning of the message. Just last November, two months ago, November 21st to be exact, 2016, they found out who he was. Turns out he was a father. Turns out he had had a career. Turns out he had family and he lived in Jacksonville Beach, Florida. 
Turns out that when Hurricane Charlie was going to come through Florida, he got in his car and he drove north to try to avoid the storm when tragedy struck and he was beaten within an inch of his life. Imagine his relief when finally, after 12 long years, this man knew exactly who he was. Purpose of a message like this today is I want you to leave here and I want you to know exactly who you are in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father in God, thank you for what Jesus does for us that we could never have accomplished on our own. Father, thank you that we are completely accepted by you. Father, thank you that we're fully capable. You actually call us priests. Father, thank you that we've been called and received to a high calling. We've received a high calling. Father, thank you that we are extremely valuable, loved eternally. And Father, thank you that we are totally, 100% forgiven. May we walk in our identity. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. God bless you, Grace. Remember, starting points, small groups, financial peace. I'll see you next time. Be